Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex political, spiritual, and philosophical ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Albert Speer, who was a close conspirator of Hitler's, uh, reflected on how he and other Nazis became complicit and participants in the Holocaust. And when he was sort of detailing it, he said uh, that he realized that in the process of Nazification, um, each man should only think about his task and not be concerned with that of his neighbor. And this was right down to the most menial functions. You could be manufacturing something, you could be signing a sheet of paper, but you would be, as a Nazi, carrying out your own labor without creating a networked understanding of what was going on. Just do your task. Do this task, then do this task, then do this task. In other words, there was this kind of mindful fragmentation and compartmentalization that became a key for mass atrocity. I think that this is potentially bad news for us as we seem to live more and more fragmented and compartmentalized lives. Fragmentation and compartmentalization are are kind of swaddling that keep us safe from understanding what we're doing to others. They shelter us from the harm our lives are doing and keep us from seeing what others are going through. And I think that this sense of safety breeds a calm sort of apathy. Um, One of my favorite writers, Susan Sontag, said this very thing. She wrote, uh, wherever people feel safe, they will be indifferent. Another way of saying this is that we feel safe because we lack compassion. Compassion means literally to suffer with, to suffer with. If we were really to enact compassion, if we were to allow our lives to intersect with the suffering of others, could we ever feel safe? How could we bear it? And that compartmentalization and fragmentation, it doesn't just take place in our work lives or the attempts to be apolitical. It also happens when we are politically active, especially in the attention economy we live in now. So much of what passes for activism is really just an expression of individualized suffering that allows a passivity when it comes to the suffering of others. Suffering becomes a marker of personal strength and empowerment, and at, at worst, it becomes something to merely be sold and utilized for personal gain, book deals and uh, likes and so forth in the attention economy. We end up a lot of times not carrying our activism through, partially because we fear we will be unsafe if we take on the suffering of others. So it's not wrong to report your suffering, but we need to ask, is this Um, reporting leading me into connectivity or separation. So for instance, we currently have a gay rights movement that was so contained that it largely failed to connect to other movements, immigrant and refugee struggles, fascist regimes in Eastern Europe, class war, and more. That's something that I've been upset about for a long time with this movement that I am deeply connected to. And these acts of not carrying the activism through until it is connective can lead us to fragmentation where we wouldn't intend it. 
So we have feminist activists, for example, talking about a movie director or producer or even an artist like Picasso <laughs> saying, don't separate the art from the artist. Um, but all the while separating the means of production of devices, clothing, and more from the product. So it's not a, it's not an extended enough critique because th these processes of production that employ slave labor and sweatshop labor that result in the torture and death and displacement of far more people than any <laughs> anybody who's an artist or a producer could harm individually, they all get a pass in a weird cognitive dissonance that doesn't follow the logic through to its end. And I'm not saying that calling out the producer who assaults people is wrong. We shouldn't say that. That's the infamous whataboutery. But are we living up to our convictions? And when we don't, when we don't actually look at, oh, this is the internal move I make in my activism, this is the logic I bring to the world, when we don't live up to our convictions, who gets shuffled under the carpet? This is something I've learned as a sex worker and an Arab for sure, particularly, particularly in this election cycle. <laughs> Which issues get hidden away to amplify other issues? Um, what logic... Uh, needs cognitive dissonance to function in the political field, but more to the point, not which issues or which logics, but which people get shuffled away. Sex workers, Arabs, refugees, indigenous people, working class people, the people who make our devices and our homes and infrastructure and who grow and harvest our food, people in the countries we pay taxes to bomb, people whose deaths have been lost in history so that memories of them, even the memories of them and the atrocities committed against them have been totally erased, entire families, entire groups of people. So how does this relate <laughs> to this episode with Dan Gretton, who is the author of I, You, We, Them? Well, Dan's book is all about people who murder by policy and who sign sheets of paper that result in the destruction of towns and murders of families. Uh, who man drones after responding to questionnaires uh, for jobs about whether or not they like video games, <laughs> who create vehicles for Nazis, who work for corporations that uh, refuse to intercede to stop the murder of activists, people whose participation in compartmentalized and fragmented work and structures have permitted them to engage in murder while feeling safe. And through that safety, being permitted a kind of luxurious indifference. The thing is, you may be one of those people. <laughs> or, and this should haunt you if you're thinking, no, Connor, I'm not one of those people. You may become one of those people if you're not right now. How do we commit ourselves to atrocity? Could you do it? Could I end up doing it? Well, here's one version. Uh, there's a conversation that Dan was having in an interview, and he told a story about his mother, uh, whose Jewish friend said to her, "Could would you have shielded me in the Holocaust? And she said, well, yes. But then later she reflected on it, and she said, well, if I didn't have kids... Even these things that we think are life-giving, 
are beautiful, are uh, enlivening, like protecting and guarding our families, can lead us into atrocity. So here are 10 points that Dan identifies in this book, uh, a list of factors that uh, lead us to be people and organizations that can kill. And uh, this list is a sort of inverse of spiritual development. It's kind of a path of black magic in a way. Incrementalism, one. Normalization and pure conformity. Language and dehumanization. Abstractifying victims from individuals to anonymous masses. Distancing yourself from the act of violence. Transferring personal responsibility to the authority's responsibility compartmentalization of thought, workaholism and the narcissism of frenzy, prioritization of abstract systems over the human being, and looking away or willful ignorance. Have you ever engaged in any of these? Has your company, your family, your loved ones? How easy would it be to uh, you for you to be absorbed into a structure that required any of these? And also importantly, would you even know if it were happening? Furthermore, is your activism, your attachment to your own suffering, occluding the suffering of others? If you want an intervention, and I think we all need one, I really suggest you read Dan's book. It is one of the only books of which I have ever said <laughs> everyone should read. I, you, we, them, walking into the world of the desk killer. I think everyone should read this book. I'll say it one more time. <laughs> it is a voluminous book detailing genocides and murders in Nazi camps, but also via the executions of Ken Sarawiwa and eight other Agoni men by the Nigerian military government through their entanglement with Shell Oil, uh, colonial Ireland, Kenyan airports. <laughs> Dan talks to the relatives of Nazis and people who work for corporations who kill. He tries to seek out the truth behind the desk killers, people who kill from their desks, whose murder weapon is not a gun or a knife, but a pen or a computer. And these are the killers that are the most abundant in our world. We give so much time, airtime, to serial killers not to mention resources to serial killers. Think about how many uh, movies you watch where there's a serial killer in every single police force, FBI coordination. I mean, all the work and money that goes into finding that serial killer. But so little is written on and so little money is dedicated to understanding this kind of murderer, the desk killer, who is part of public policy, part of the way we do things, and part of our lives, part of our governments and the corporations that enable and profit off them. You might object, you might say, well, the serial killer is, you know, monstrous in a way that is broody, brutal and grisly and psychosexual, and we need to understand that psychology. Like, and, and also, that kind of killing is a specific kind of evil. I've heard, I've heard this said, especially by people who are kind of uh, progressive, uh, spiritual people. Um, you might say that drones are different, for example, like... Um, 
Well, yeah, but war, that's, that's policy. That's something else. That's not just killing someone individually. Like right now we have QAnon people, right, who are saying, oh, we need to pay attention to these kids that are uh, pulled into ping pong pizza parlor and, uh, you know, ritually abused and killed because that has a special significance of evil to it. But how does that compare to the German genocide of the Herero Anama people, wherein women were asked to take the severed heads of their loved ones, people they knew, and boil them, and scrape the skin and hair off with shards of glass, and then send those skulls, give those skulls over to the Ger German genocidal officers to send back to Germany to be displayed in museums. That was done by policy, and that is ritual murder and ritual sacrifice. I want to say, <laughs> Dan's book, again, I insist you read it, it is a book of compassion, and why? Well, first of all, it's a beautiful book. It is absolutely beautiful. Amongst all that detailing, there's so much space in the book. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, John Berger, the, uh, the amazing author who wrote Ways of Seeing, who you may or may not have heard of, but that's his most famous work, um, he said to Dan that there was... Uh, <laughs> that one of the, the mistakes he saw often in books was that authors didn't leave any breathing space for the reader. And there's so much breathing space in this voluminous book, this big book. There are walks that Dan takes with his friend across the countryside. There are stories of his father. There are uh, stories about animals in the book. And none of it is myopic. Why? Because it allows us to take the violence that we're reading in. We take it in. It's horrific. It's intense. I had to put the book down a bunch of times because it was so intense, but I never felt like I couldn't go back for more. It allows us to take the violence in and breathe it in and then breathe it out. That's that breathing room. And when we do that, as we do with this gift of a book that Dan has written, it is not to let go of the violence the way we let go of intensity when we applaud um, and just clap and end things or when we laugh nervously, but rather it's this process of breathing that lets it permeate ourselves. So this is a book that is an intervention because there are few books that help us feel this way that allow us to better contend with evil. At the end of this episode, Dan also reads an unpublished letter to the future. And uh, I think it exemplifies some of his approach to writing and thinking. It's a beautiful moment uh, on the show. It's full of sorrow and hope. Now, this episode, this conversation, as well as Dan's work, I think reminds us what's at stake and what's really always at stake when we don't meet each other in love, in compassion, and in the hopes for each other's uh, freedom. So, <laughs> this is a long introduction, but I, I really wanted to uh, give justice to what's to come on this episode. Uh, 
Look, if you want to uh, buy Dan's book, go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and there's show notes for this episode. And I each episode do a little book list um, through bookshop.org. Bookshop.org uh, is an Amazon alternative that uh, gets books at like uses uh, independent bookstores as its distributor. So it will get a book for you from the closest independent bookstore that has it and send it to you. And it's supporting in, I think it's now in the millions and millions of dollars uh, supporting indie bookstores in this time. So if you go to my show notes, there's a book list at do it for every episode um, and it will have their uh, books by Dan, but also books by some of the people that we mention in the episode, Jan Karski, Gita Sereni, Joseph Boys, uh, Primo Levi. So uh, that's all in the show notes. While you're there, please do consider supporting the show. Don't just consider it. You could do it. Um, <laughs> this show is funded by people who listen to it. That's the only funding that this show has I don't want to have ads. Um, I don't want to entangle myself with companies that might be doing shitty things in the world. So I don't have any sponsors except the people who listen to the show. So patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb. You can contribute on any level that you want. Um, it takes it out like each month. So a dollar a month, $5 a month, 10 euro a month, 25, whatever. Um, whatever you can deal with in your financial situation or whatever you feel so generous to give to the show, patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb. Please also uh, support the show by uh, subscribing on your favorite podcast platform and giving it five stars on iTunes. Um, <laughs> so that's all for that. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb. If you do already support the show and there are a bunch of you, thank you so much. It allows me to uh, have conversations like this, which I think are important and medicinal conversations for our moment. All right, that's it. This was a long intro, but uh, I think it sets up the episode and the tone nicely. So here's my conversation with Dan Gretton. Hey everybody, it's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. I am very excited to be speaking with you. Hi, Dan Gretton. Hi, Connor. <laughs> um, okay, so there are so many places to start, um, but I think we'll start with this. Uh, there's just a little bit in the beginning of your book, I, You, We, Them, that is about how we focus so much time on serial killers um, mm. versus desk killers. And then there's a bit, you know, later uh, about psychopaths and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, it's funny because before I came across your book, I was watching this show, um, Mindhunter, which was about the development of like a serial killer, you know, task force or whatever. And I remember watching that and thinking, God, so much, so much resources, like so much time and effort mm. into mm. these individuals. And yet, mm. 
um, people who are responsible for mass murder um, and atrocities on, they're not investigated. There isn't this kind of, so I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Um, why you, why you think that is first mm. uh, as a way into everything else. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you mention it because in fact, only yesterday I saw that um, the ITV have got a big new drama starting next week with David Tennant and he's doing, um, D- David Tennant is doing it with Dennis Nielsen, you know, the serial killer in London <laughs> in the, I think it was back in the eighties. And uh, it, 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 it's always fascinated me, this obsession in our society with the psychopaths, with the serial killers. And yet, um, I, I, I think not even 1%, 2% of attention has focused on the, the truly dangerous people who are the almost anonymous people who work at their desks, who work in a corporation, who might work in a bureaucracy. And I think the reason for that possibly is we are, in our society, we are so obsessed by, if you like, the individuals who we can who we can look at as individuals rather than looking at systems. I I even wonder whether our minds are equipped to be able to deal with entire systems or bureaucracies. Um, I I, I just don't, I I think it's something to do with the limit of the, of the human mind and what we can grasp. Um, I had an example of this just in terms of doing the research on the book, which was, that there were times during the research over getting on for 20 years when I, I was kind of brought to almost a point of despair in terms of my ability to process vast quantities of information. And there was a moment in an archive in London when I was working with a research assistant and we were looking at probably the most powerful company, certainly the most powerful corporation working in Nazi Germany, IG Farben. And they were the second biggest company in the world at the time. And IG Farben, as you'll know from the book, um, had this vast chemical complex at Auschwitz, um, where people like Primo Levi and Elie Wiesel worked as slave laborers. And, um, IG Farben were there was a trial after the war of these um, of this corporation because they were they worked hand in hand with the SS and it was like a kind of partnership between the the German state and this company and <laughs> my my research assistant found out that the trial transcripts he had found them they were eleven thousand pages of on micro in those days it was on microfiche. And simply to read that material would have taken a team of people. And that was one company, <laughs> admittedly a very, very powerful, that was one single company. And I wonder whether we almost have the resources mm. to hold mm. vast corporations to account or vast bureaucracies to account. I, maybe, it's, maybe that's part of it. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things that you state again and again in different ways in the book is 
you know, we need to hold the individuals in these structures responsible <laughs> as well, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. on the one hand, we need to sort of pull back and look at the structures and the systems. And on the other hand, sort of funnel in and hold accountable the individuals who are, uh, uh, I don't know, like that are constitutive of these structures mm -hmm. or, or maybe the structures are constitutive of them. It's hard to see. So I think that that's part of it is just sort of pulling apart, like, well, how, how is this happening? Why? Who's responsible? Is the structure mm -hmm. bleeding into someone's psyche? Are they responsible for creating it and upholding it? Where's the push and pull, all that kind of stuff. And I think that that's, I mean, that's a huge part of the book is you trying to answer those mm -hmm. kinds of questions. But you know, I, also I mean, there's that, there's, a, there's that quote that I think I, I, I actually I don't I don't use it in the book, but um, it's one of my favorite quotations from an American activist. And I think he was a musician as well um, called Utah Phillips. Mm -hmm. um, and he came up with this line, which is totally brilliant. Um, the planet is not dying. It is being killed. And the people killing it have names and addresses. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah. That, so 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 we need to analyze the systems, but we also need to realize that people in those systems are individuals with names and addresses, and we need to hold those individuals accountable. Yeah, and I think I think it's always the scale of the crime as well that's difficult to deal with. I mean, the the sort of child's question, which is a really important one, is like, well, why does the murderer get to go free, but like war is okay? And then mm -hmm. if you're a soldier, you know, you <laughs> it become celebrated for killing people. And I think, you know, like when I'm thinking about the serial killers, there's this kind of psychosexual imagination about them. But certainly if you look into the way that policy filters into people's actions, you have these examples, which in the book, which I had to, I mean, they are serial killer E, which I had to put down the book, you know, because it was so, I mean, the, the, <laughs> just so everybody knows, this is one of, it, it's one of the only books, I've said this in the intro, this is one of the only books that I would say everybody must actually read. Everybody should read this book. I say that without hyperbole exaggeration, but it also will, it's beautiful, but also make you, sick at points and make you cry at other points. And I had to set it down a, a few times, um, but then always picked it back up again. So just so everybody knows that too. But, but one of the examples is when you're talking about the um, German uh, genocide in Southwest Africa with the Herrera Nama um, mm -hmm. nations and the, and people and the women who were, uh, forced to boil the heads of people they of the, their relatives and friends that they knew of the severed heads and then to remove and flense the skin and hair to make skulls for german science and museums mm -hmm. and that sort of thing or the <clears throat> the the bush rangers in tasmania having picnics with their family and then going hunting and killing aboriginal people so the, what they called crow hunting, yes. Yeah, so the That's image of the serial killer as this singularly violent in a certain kind of way person also is false. I mean, we can see it's that kind of pleasure in killing or cruelty 
does bleed in to other people, even if they don't sort of live their lives obsessively as serial killers and that sort of yeah. idea, like yeah. it's not removed from that spectrum at all. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, no, I, I, I mean the, I thought I had to think very, very carefully about very carefully about exactly what to include in the book and what the reader's limits were, because I wanted to, I wanted to put the reader directly in a position where they are all the time thinking what their responsibility is as well. So the more personal reflections in the book, they're only in there in as much as I want everybody reading this to, to really, really interrogate themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, the, the Karski material in the book, which I, I think I think he's one of the most extraordinary figures. Will you just say who but, that is for people? Well, Jan Karski, was a, he was a Polish um, resistance um, fighter, um, but kind of very much part of the Polish underground. Um, and he, with staggering courage, um, made a decision that he would put himself as a witness to the genocide going on in Poland. And so twice he went, he was smuggled into the Warsaw Ghetto, and once he was taken to um, a, a kind of railway transit camp near Belzec called Izbica. And the description in the book of that what he witnesses at Izbica, which of course is something that very, very few people directly witness because he was smuggled into this high security area. Now that, that, that passage goes on for pages. And in the book, I give it to a, my friend Jay, who I'm traveling with. And I'm not sure, even to this day, I'm not sure whether he's processed that, that passage in the book. And it, it, he was totally appalled by reading it. I was appalled when I read it the first time. And what you say about breaking down when you're reading it, um, repeatedly I've had to, I, in the process of writing this, repeatedly I've had to stop. I've had to go outside. I've had to sometimes for days stop work on this and then come back to it. But I think if people like Karski put themselves in positions to witness what was going on, I do believe we have an almost sacred responsibility mm -hmm. to read what he has written. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think <clears throat> when you say keeping in mind the responsibility of the reader and what, what we have to do, so um, it's something that came up so many times in so many different ways for me when I was reading this book because there's this sort of line of of dissonance that takes place. It, it, it's a it's a line that's in different places for different people all the time. So this is not in the book, but mm. for instance, when we when you talk to these so-called QAnon people now who are obsessed with like the satanic ritual abuse of children and saying that that's you know these pe pedophile rings and all that sort of stuff. Well, without sort of wading into that morass of whether or not that's happening, 
why don't they care about drone strikes against Pakistani children, <laughs> right? Like, it, immediately it reveals to me the kind of, uh, that there's a, there's a motivation there that is actually not about care or that is severed from care for certain kinds of people um, and, and severed from accountability for certain kinds of people as well. And so, you know, your line, you know, the entire Holocaust couldn't have happened without collusion between the corporations and the Nazi state when you're talking about World War II, you know, we, we hold certain people, you know, uh, responsible and we let certain people off the hook and we do that with ourselves in certain ways too. So like, I'm also thinking of, you know, um, this is a bit of a hypercharged example, but in the sort of fluorescing of the me too movement, the ways that, um, the, the ways that it took place in, in, in a, entirely sort of neoliberal context where it was like, well, I'm going to condemn Roman Polanski, but how are people think about condemning Roman Polanski? And yet I'm not going to investigate my participation in the devices that I'm using <laughs> to do that. You know, that, that, um, the, the tech and the, and the products that I buy that are responsible for a vast array of violence against millions of people that doesn't become part of my concern and in fact it's almost like a psychoanalytic kind of compromise solution i view it as like i'm going to funnel the complaint into attacking in a, in a sphere that relates to sex and a sphere that relates to art now that doesn't mean don't hold people accountable who don't com who commit horrible <laughs> crimes against people but it's interesting to me the way that that happens and it seems to even maybe cut off the consciousness or somehow absolve people of the responsibility to have the consciousness of the larger mm -hmm. picture, you know? Totally. I mean, I, you know, I, I, th I think the, um, I think we're in a very, very strange world right now, really strange. Um, and I think, I think technology I'm, I mean, of course, it's brought amazing benefits. I'm also extraordinarily skeptical about the about aspects of it um, and the fact that we're all spending most of our time, well, especially the last few months with the pandemic, we're spending even more time staring at screens for most of our days. I think that's made us quite obsessively self-referential. Mm. Um, and... I have to say I had certain sympathy a, a couple of years ago when I think the Me Too really kicked off. I, th I think there, there, there were six or 7,000 human beings who had died in the Mediterranean trying to get across from Africa to Europe at this exactly the same time that that movement kicked off. And... It's not to say there weren't total justifications for aspects of that movement, but I just worry enormously. We have become so obsessed, super obsessed in our world now with our own identities, with nuances of identity, with um, everything turned in on ourselves that often we are totally ignoring, you know, mass human rights devastating human rights abuses which are going on every day every week every month on our doorstep and and i i worry about what that what that move in 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 us in a 
identity, it, it, all these obsessions about ourselves and our lives and our inner, you know, what that's actually doing to our, our abilities to be really politically engaged human beings. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really concerns me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I also think it's <clears throat> as if we know who we are. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, the, the idea of identity being based on a declaration of what the self is as if it's an object is, is, is a real issue. I mean, I think, you know, it's very, um, it's, it's very obvious the ways in which the secreting away and oppression of people of certain identities takes the form of violence and how that must be resisted, whether it's through trans rights, through gay rights, through, Black Lives Matter movements, these kinds of uh, movements, and also um, like the that that's one version of it, and then there's another version which is this kind of um, yeah, it's an inc- it's an occluding move, which mm. I think we should be wary of as well. Like, is is the work we're doing? Um, we'll come back to this maybe towards the end, but is the work we're doing connectivity? Are we are we linking up in a kind of solidarity of understanding, or is it <laughs> compartmentalization, which is <laughs> something that you, you, you talked about, or you know this sort of Hobbesian war of all against all, you know? Mm. But I think you know the, again with this sort of dissonance, like you know, there's this moment where you where you write about teaching your teaching, and you have this Italian student mm. uh, who starts. <laughs> just sort of talking shit about Roma people, you know, just, and just goes off. And it's funny, you know, when I read that, I thought about, um, I had this alternative medical practitioner here. Who's this really kind, gentle guy (laughs) here and he's treating me. And then he just starts going off on travelers and I (laughs) despicable, terrible people he's saying. And I'm, Like, you know, of course, I'm I'm tensing up. I can't go see him again because of what he's saying. Or or we could talk about how people do that. I mean, yeah. But this is to do what you you see that Italian student who you mentioned and I write about in the book. The thing that deeply disturbed me about her is she was a doctor. Mm -hmm. So she had, she had, she was in that world of where she spent her day-to-day, week-to-week life, caring, <laughs> uh, caring for other people mm-hmm. and helping them over their illnesses and their problems. And she was a really nice woman, I thought. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and then in mm. this, you know, I, it mm. was a time when, um, you're right, it was a time when Roma people were being in the Czech Republic. And it was, this was when um, President Havel was in, in power. And they, a local part of Czech Republic had decided they were going to create a, a ghetto. Mm-hmm. This is in, this is, you know, 20 years ago or something, in the early noughties. <laughs> a ghetto mm-hmm. of Roma people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'd taken an article in and I was talking about it with this advanced group of students. And this... Uh, I, I made assumptions about that, that the, the class and, and the people that, that we would be appalled by this. And so when she started to generalize then about Roma, mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. I, it was shocking to me. And she started to use the word they, which is one of the words that most terrifies me. <laughs> because mm-hmm. when people start to generalize, I almost think genocide begins 
with the third person plural pronoun with they <laughs> because once you start to generalize about any group or any that's a real problem <laughs> and she started to make these sweeping generalizations about how uh, they had done this in where she lived in in the south of Italy, they had you know destroyed the housing they were given, and they had, and I, and I I began. It's the only time in my teaching life where I, I and I still I'm not sure I made the right decision. I I kind of I went into sarcasm mode, and I said, well maybe they should maybe they should be gassed. You know maybe they should be put into camps. Is is that is is that what you'd like to see with these people? And I, she did get my point. The class were shocked as well, but she never returned to the class. So in, <laughs> yeah. in, pe yeah. in pedagogic terms, that was a failure. And my intervention was a failure. Mm -hmm. But it was a red rag to me to have a group of people demonized as she was doing. And the fact she was a doctor, again. I mean, I, in, in another part of the book, you'll remember in, in, the, in the chapter on the Vance Conference, I, you know, I, I go through in forensic detail the, the kind of um, the, the civil servants who all were a crucial part of organising the Holocaust, meeting in this leafy suburb in June 1942. I'm sorry, in, in January 1942. And, and most of those people were doctors. Eight of them were doctors. Mm -hmm. We're doctorates. And lots of those were doctors of law. And again, you know, I'm, I'm kind of shocked by that. Maybe I shouldn't be, because why, why should intellectuals be less perpetrators <laughs> than any other class? Uh -huh. And of course, later in the book, I go into what happened in Bosnia. And of course, intellectuals were an absolutely key component mm -hmm. of what Milosevic and Karadzic were doing in, Bos in um, Bosnia. A clean and Nobel Prize winner in literature last oh, year, apparently. Absolutely. <laughs> Who's a wonderful oh, writer. Oh, yeah, that's right. Who's that's a wonderful right. writer, but yeah. <laughs> a defender of Milosevic. Yeah, <laughs> crazy. I mean, it's, it is. It's so, I mean, I'm just bringing up that example to just say, but, like, it's really interesting where it understands. It is interesting, but I think maybe some of that shock from, 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 for me was because I, I, you know, my, I come from a family of academics. And mm -hmm. so the idea of academic, you know, my father was a classicist. Um, my grandfather was a historian. So the idea of uh, this extraordinarily, what I felt of as a benign world that my father was part of, University College London and these wonderful discussions with his very, very erudite colleagues that I would sometimes be taken along to. Um, the idea that academics or people with high qualifications could be such a critical part of a genocidal system, you know, that was truly shocking. Well, yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, for me as someone who has done sex workers rights advocacy for a long time and sex work for a while that's not it becomes not a shock because mm. a lot one of the biggest enemies of the sex workers rights movement are feminists which is crazy now there are one of their biggest supporters are also feminists but feminists yeah, of a different mm. sort so you learn very quickly are the same people who dislike trans people dislike sex workers and it's just that mm. the way that any ideology can sort of turn into this you know uh, th this sort of blinding complex, you know, I, I think I find it so, I, I just keep thinking about the ways in which this line of dissonance shows up again and again, like after the Holocaust, um, 
when the prisoners were released and the, you know, the people in concentration camps were <laughs> released, gay men were still forced to live out prison terms after that for being gay, right? Or you have this quote. Well, or, or crazy things like the, the, um, the, the entire army, the, the armies, as you'll know, of course, the American armies in the Second World War were, segre- were racially segregated. <laughs> right. I mean, what right. an astounding idea that, you know, the, the, the armies that were defeating fascism Mm-hmm. were organized on fascist basis of racial segregation. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and you have this great quote from John Mitchell, the sort of Irish rebel, right, who um, says, you know, condemns the English, the Almighty indeed sent the potato blight, but the English created the famine. And so in that, pertinent for our time, like disasters and diseases are sort of blameless phenomenon, but the structures of power and specifically the people who run those structures turn them into catastrophes. And yet John Mitchell also supported the Confederacy and was a racist. So it's uh, just no, like... That's interesting. No, that, that's fascinating. I, I, I wasn't aware of that. That's very well, Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, you know, again, it was like so he's sort of a radical for his time, but it's just the ways in which these kinds of lines that people, they, mm. they, the refusal to investigate. And I just kept finding that again and again mm. in your book. And it cast me into a place of like, okay, where am, where am I doing that? I'm not sure who I'm letting off the hook and where I'm not examining myself. You can't even find the question easily, much less mm. answer it properly. Mm-hmm. Something which I, for me has has sort of, in a terrifying way, um, destroyed the left in my adult lifetime mm-hmm. or has had a huge negative impact on the left for, for really from uh, for all of the last, since I've been a kind of conscious political kind of adult, maybe the last sort of 30, 35 years. And that's um, the need for purity. Mm-hmm. The left's need for purity. And I've been talking a lot recently to friends in America, activist friends in America, about what's going on at the moment in America, which is, I think, in the most serious, terrifying political situation, certainly I've known in my lifetime. And one of the things that horrifies me is that the inability the inability of our, as of of many of us on the left to actually at times put our purity on hold and unite totally across all progressive circles to unite against a common enemy that is vastly more terrifying than our small differences and you, you know i I've struggled with this over the years because I've got lots of friends involved in the Green Party and Green Movement. I've also got a lot of friends involved on the left, some of them in the Labour Party, some of them outside the Labour Party. I, I struggle to say this, but I will say it. I, I held Ralph Nader personally responsible for um, events that then led to the Iraq War. Because Ralph Nader, as you'll know, you'll remember, was the Green Party leader in America. And he stood in 2000 against Bush. I voted for him, yeah. 
Well, oh, that's you see. I mean, now you know that that stolen election in two thousand mm-hmm. would have been utterly impossible without Nader, without the support for Nader and the Green Party. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely critical in Florida. I went through the voting figures in the last election just a few days ago, and I found out again to my. It's as if we never learn anything, Connor. I found out that Jill Stein, the current Green Party leader, or was in 2016 in America, she took tens of thousands of votes from Hillary Clinton in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and the other critical states in America. So again, the the vanity and the absurdity of figures on the broad left mm. not realizing when we have to stand down and create a broad united left and 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 i just find it it's is it about we're so obsessed with purity and our own tiny whatever those exact perfect leftist world might be that we actually think that's more important those tens of thousands of votes there was something like 100,000 votes for the green party in those three key states in the last american election now we wouldn't have had the current president who i never i never refer to by name because i i i call him the sociopath which was the the language that was used by tony schwartz who wrote the book the art of the deal with him all those years ago hmm. and tony schwartz um just before the last election he wrote in the new yorker an article called the sociopath that has since been actually taken down which i'm fascinated by um and schwartz was saying this man must never ever ever get near political power mm-hmm. now what i'm what you know i i i maybe some people think this this was unfair of me but you know think about the iraq the two of the most terrible 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 political Com- situations of the last 20 years think about the iraq war and think about the election of the sociopath 4 mm-hmm. years ago mm-hmm. those two events were enabled by um the the stupidity of the american green party <laughs> and it you know it pains me to say that but it's true. well well so here we have a point of tension but what let's see if we can let's see if we can do it without without disagreement or debate exactly but actually just sort of interest in each mm-hmm. other let's see what can happen here you know for me <clears throat> the experience of the you know american political scene is especially around presidential elections is the complete relinquishing of responsibility um except for voting and so for me the idea being that many people who vote this way or that i mean even we to the point where there there's a very popular bumper sticker in america i don't know if you've ever seen it but it's like don't blame me i voted for whoever lost that right <laughs> it's like literally you know that but but no one would say blame me i voted for this candidate who's now in power right no one no one seems interested in taking more responsibility for the person they vote for which in fact should be true if you vote for Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden this time around remember you you're more responsible for what they do not less right mm. so i think um by the way i sh- i should make absolutely clear that i i i, I don't <laughs> have uh, it's not that i had any enthusiasm about any kind of radicalism <laughs> of, 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 you know, of gore 
or Hillary Clinton. Not see, at all. You're, but just, see, yes, but you're talking from a place. Sort of, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, Go no, ahead. No, no, no. no, I'm just, I'm, I'm just saying they were, you know, um, uh, centrist, moderate figures. But, but you know, my God, can you imagine <laughs> what the world would look like if we hadn't had a war in Iraq? Well, that that is a particularly yes. So, I think there's an extra dimension to what you're saying, which is that you, in fact, are a politically responsible person already. Mm. <laughs> so that so the act of voting in the context of your life is a different act than the act of voting in the context of other people's lives, because you take action anyway. You're mm. sort of morally and ethically oriented towards doing investigating questioning and for me you know like a really great example is kamala harris um that i can speak of it for you know in, in personal experience because of the way that she has relentlessly um gone after and attacked sex worker communities in california and in the entire u.s for her entire career but the way that she was always let off the hook by the general progressive, if not leftist, but progressive community because of who she was, um, because of her identity. And so I think the way that certain tactics end up masking other tactics is difficult. And I think that if people do what you're saying, I am on board with it. Like if you, if the people who are going to vote for Hillary would have said, I'm voting for her, but she's horrible for this and this and this and this reason. We have a different outcome of voting for her than saying, um, she's the best. I'm going to vote for her, you know, like, but, but it's not accompanying that. I mean, another example for me is great example is gay marriage in the U S where, which I think is quite different than gay marriage in certain other countries is like in Ireland, I view the way it went down as actually a positive, but in the U S the gay marriage conversation had very little to do with, um, well, this is a tactic and a strategy to sort of navigate kind of state power and all that kind of stuff. And we need to have this and different kinds of relationships are possible and all that Mm. as a result of that non nuanced or complex discussion, you had a kind of purity politics of this is the right thing to do that eventually ended up deeply conservatizing a formerly radical community in the U.S. And so it, the way that these things play out is not, for me, quite as simple. I mean, and then just there's just the other fact that, you know, the people who didn't vote vastly outnumber the people who did vote anyway. So why that sliver of Nader or Stein voters? I have a question about that. When well, it's, I mean, that, that's a valid, know. that's an absolutely valid point. That, that absolutely, no, I, I do accept that completely. But I, but, uh, and I think it's, you know, it's probably in America, I think the, the actual turnout rate is, is, is under 50%, isn't it? It's, it's pretty <laughs> yeah. low. Yeah. 40%, it, 45%, something like that. Didn't so vote have, always wins, you know, the right. election. Well, yeah. well, that, that's, a very, that, that's a very fair point. I mean, I suppose it's possible that as we get older, we become more nostalgic for things in our youth. I mean, that's entirely <laughs> possible. But I have been thinking a lot in the last year or two about... You know, when I was at university, um, the model, the model of um, uh, like mm. United Front politics was astonishingly effective mm. because what it what it was, it was a weekly meeting we we had, and 
it was open. It was utterly open. So some weeks, uh, you know, 50 people would turn up, other weeks, 80, some weeks, 100 people would turn up. This was at the time of the miners' strike in the UK, the early 80s. Again, a, a, a most extraordinary time, like a kind of probably a civil, what's been described as a, the, an, uh, a British civil war without bullets, but it was mm-hmm. a civil war in the early 80s. And that was the absolutely key moment that Thatcher then took control. When the There's a great portrait of that era in your book as well, just for people that- Right at the beginning of the book, because I, yeah. I like yeah. to give the readers a kind of context of where I've come from politically. But the, but the, the remarkable thing about those meetings we had at University mm. College is that people could, people had their own political positions, incredibly varied. So at those meetings, we had anarchists, we had Communist Party members, we had Labour students, we had Palestinian activists, we had Jewish activists, we had liberals, we had the most incredible range of people coming to those meetings. Mm-hmm. And they parked their own particular individual politics mm-hmm. at the door of that room. And we came together to say, what can we do as a united left? This, what is the key focus for the next week? Where do people need help? Mm-hmm. We need to, okay, this picket is, needs help helping out. We need to get families of um, striking miners. You know, we need to work on raising money for that. We need a campaign on that. And people came together and they, they could carry on their, their own politics carried on the rest of the week. It was fine. You could be as communist as you liked or as anarchist as you liked or as socialist as you liked or as liberal as you liked. But we came together. Mm-hmm. a united front and my god that was effective i mean i know it's only student yeah. politics but no 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 but, it's also the but, non-aligned but I, movement yeah I, i've been seeking to find that i've been yeah. seeking to find that broad coalition the whole of my adult life and i've never found mm. it you know and that that upsets me that really yeah does. i think dm dm is working on that kind of thing right now um and uh svechko horvat who is on the show is is doing some of that work but the but yeah the and the non-aligned movement had something to had a very similar sort of approach i think that that's absolutely correct and i think we agree completely on that point it but what that reveals to me is that there's a breakdown in connectivity strategizing and tactics not necessarily so much a breakdown in the voting system but an inability to even discuss how that could be deployed tactically mm. you know how how would we vote tactically aside from because now it's just in american politics well just anybody but trump well when we asked for that that's what we got was just anybody you know <laughs> other than him but you know it's reminding me of this uh, this Joseph Boys quote which um, okay. I know Joseph Boys is really influential on, mm. on, on you and I think he's great but it's um a lifetime is not so long you cannot wait for a tool without blood on it and i and i think that this that speaks to this it's like there is no unpolluted tool that we can reach mm. for at this point they're all they're all polluted and, and, and actually polluted with blood. It's not just, mm. um, it's not, not just some, de- you know, d- vague deformity or whatever, but actually there's violence on all the tools that we could reach for. And I would love if we could develop new tools and new ways mm. forward. And in the meantime, do that absolutely urgent on the ground work that's needed now just to give us more space to develop something mm-hmm. <laughs> new at mm-hmm. the same time, you know? Mm. Well, so. I mean, Boyce is, uh, Boyce is, it's strange, you know, 
when you live quite a long time, you 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 kind of go. It, there are people who were so important in, and uh, you know, in your teens or your twenties, who you then come back to later on, or sometimes you don't think of for years. And I haven't actually thought much about Boyce um, the last few years, um, but I've just recently, especially with um, you know Black Lives Matter, really becoming so such a potent force this year in America. Um, I've, it's really made me think a lot about um, this this um, project, the, this performance event he did, which is I, a, a, a beautiful event. Which um, I'm sure some of your listeners will have come across. Which was is was this? It's it's the event sometimes just called Coyote, but it's it's called America likes um, I like America and America likes me. He'd never set foot on American soil before, and he was flown into America, to New York, um, wrapped in a blanket, um, taken, collected by ambulance, so his feet didn't actually touch the floor, taken to a gallery in um, Soho, and he spent three days and three nights in this room in kind of silent communion with a coyote. <laughs> looking out the window sometimes, the coyote pulling at his his kind of blanket he was wearing. And it's mesmerising. It's, it's an extraordinarily beautiful um, performance piece. And yet, of course, the reason Boyce chose the figure of the coyote mm-hmm. was it was the sacred animal for the Amerindians. It was one of the most sacred animals. And his whole point was this is an entire country founded on the extermination mm-hmm. of its native peoples. And, you know, I think about that more and more. I've always had a very, very, um, very, very, um, uh, uh, I don't know what the word is, sceptical attitude to America as, a, as obviously the political state of America for obvious reasons. But whenever I go there and travel there, I, I, I feel it everywhere. Mm-hmm. The entire, the entire country is founded on genocide. In a way, I, I can think of no other examples in the world as clear. And I wonder whether part of BLM is to do with what happens when a country has never, ever, ever properly had a conversation about being founded on genocide. And, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not only singling out, I mean, America is interesting in terms of its foundation in that way. But of course, in the book, uh, you know, you can, there, there's whole chapters on Britain and Britain's <laughs> appalling colonial history, which again, I think some of the terrifying political situations we're in now uh, can be traced back directly to our inability to have a proper reckoning with our past. And a serious reckoning with our past, um, because you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of Britain's power and success totally predicated on the most extraordinarily violent colonial massacres and and trade and trade disguised not trade but I mean, you know, slavery dis- disguised as trade. I mean, uh, we've we've never come to terms with that. And I don't think America has, has until maybe very recently or just starting. Maybe that conversation is just beginning now. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, again, something, again, that just comes up in your book again and again 
and in fact, it was one of the keys I've heard you say for writing the book is this idea of compartmentalization. Mm. And it can happen in a lot of ways, just like that sort of dissonance that we're talking about before, which in fact is a kind of compartmentalization, you know, mm. like it is, no. I see this, but not this, but mm. is, <clears throat> you know, um, so one, one of the forms, it, it, it can be, I'm going to be so sort of immersed in pursuing an idea or it can be, I'm going to be so immersed in pursuing a specific task. So the first example, you know, I'm thinking is of um, Charles uh, Trevelyan, right? Mm -hmm. um, who um, basically, <laughs> for the famine here in Ireland, in uh, um, sorry, the famine here in Ireland in the 19th century was sort of wrapped up in this idea that there was a kind of natural law happening, but that the economic principles were natural and it, not only natural, but also ordained in a way. It reminded me a lot of Colin Powell during the AIDS crisis saying something like, well, if it's just gay people, like, you know, we don't really need to, you know, we've got, we've got our own stuff and it's just kind of cleaning up the problem. Who cares? Mm -hmm. You know, right. But, mm -hmm. but the idea that you would be so stuck in the ideology um, or, you know, or willfully um, blind to, to the people that you have compartmentalized. Um, there's the ideology and then there's human life. Mm -hmm. So that's the one version. The other version is um, the, the thinking about your task and not being concerned with your neighbor, which we'll get to in a second. But I wanted to talk about the ideology part first, where well, the, the ideology overrides is, everything. It overrides everything. And Trevelyan was... Um, was obviously based in in London in 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 uh, the Treasury, and 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 there was this, ex as you say, extraordinarily ideological position mm -hmm. of non-intervention with famine. I mean, in a way, he was very influenced by this Manchester School of Economists, who were absolutely about the free market, the working of the free market, and you could not intervene. This is that this was their obsession. You couldn't intervene economically to help famine victims. You let the market take its course. And and of course that was also founded on hundreds of years of racist thinking about the, the Irish. And there was the, the, this appalling language often comparing, um, you know, the, um, the Irish peasants to sort of monkeys or chimpanzees. I mean, it's sort of staggeringly racist when we read that now. But But all of this, um, was uh, what what it what it it only functioned by the, this is why you know I, he's an absolutely archetypal desk killer because he was doing all of that from his office in Whitehall mm -hmm. and only once does he come to Ireland during the famine he and he comes to Dublin he stays at a hotel in Dublin and he doesn't leave Dublin mm -hmm. now that was where. The famine wasn't as, as um, you know, not, the, the effects of it were not as um, clear as if he'd gone even just, you know, 10, 15, 20 miles outside Dublin. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't do that. And I'm completely fascinated in the reasons that when he does, the one time he comes to Ireland, that he doesn't allow himself to actually go to places. And, and it's that idea of what does the desk killer do? when they are, after years and years of thinking abstractly, 
when they are then confronted with the human costs of their work. Mm. And it's a totally extraordinary moment. That, uh, and, and, and with Trevelyan, deliberately not seeing. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to put myself in that position. But of course, the, the parallel I make in the book, mm-hmm. where another terrifying descular, Albert Speer, who was Hitler's you know, um, arms and munitions minister in the war, having started as architect, um, there's this moment when Speer visits um, Dora, which is where the V2 rockets were being made. And it's one of the very, very few times he actually sees the impact of the work that normally he's in Berlin and, and it's all about abstract figures and reports and, you know, on a, on a macro level. And he then goes to see this um, place where they're making the V2 rockets under the mountains. Um, and, of course, they're dead bodies at the... At the um, entrance there are there's appalling he, he can see people he can see people um uh, literally collapsing from exhaustion and he cannot look into the eyes of these men mm-hmm. now that's an extraordinary moment mm-hmm. when the descular is confronted with their the 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 um, impacts of their work and after that that was in december 43 and after that Speer has a kind of breakdown, total physical and mental breakdown. And he goes away. He, he's not working. He goes up to Finland. He, he, he wants to sort of escape and clean his mind. And then he's in hospi- hospitalized for weeks. And people say that was the moment. I mean, it's, it's very complicated with Speer because he was so um, evasive. And, but there is this moment in hospital when Hitler visits him in hospital. And he says that's the moment he thought that he began to understand things in a different way. And perhaps that Hitler was insane at that stage, you know, mm-hmm. if he hadn't been before. Um, and uh, I, I am totally fascinated in, in what happens when the Descalers leave their office. Another <laughs> example, yeah. uh, one, uh, one final example, Connor, to bring it right into our world. Um, I worked um, for several years with... Um, Anita Roddick and uh, Gordon Roddick, uh, in the, who, who set up the body shop and then, were, you know, but did a lot of activist work, some really interesting activist work as well. And, and Anita and Gordon had been hugely helpful at the time of the Nigeria protests mm-hmm. and Ken Sarawiwa in the mid 90s. They were really, they, they, were, they were brilliant at that time in terms of getting a kind of media focus onto this situation and getting, helping Ken Sarawiwa, who was so inspiring anyway, but helping him get a wider platform um, and having that really, take, you know, taken further. And Anita and Gordon visited um, the Niger Delta a couple of times and they were so appalled at what they saw in the, in the Delta Especially, they they were really appalled at these so-called Shell community projects because Shell would go on about how much they were helping, you know, helping the people and and, and that, and and the hospitals they'd set up. And I remember Gordon telling me that the the medicines in the hospital, it was like something you might see in your bathroom cabinet at home. I mean, there were no proper medicines, no antibiotics, no serious medicines, no morphine, nothing like that. It was like um, paracetamol, you know. <laughs> and, and it was a farce. The whole thing was a farce. And they came back to London and they got a meeting with the then head of Shell, 
in London at the Shell Centre. And Gordon and Anita said to him, says Mark Moody Stewart, and they said to him, come, come to Nigeria with us, come to the Niger Delta <laughs> with us, because we want, to sh- we want to show you what we have seen. And the, this ridiculous idea of, you know, this kind of farce of the shell community support when they're actually, you know, devastating the, devastating the whole of the <laughs> Niger Delta through oil production and then doing this pathetic little um, patch, like putting plasters on wounds. And, um, and Mark Moody Stewart accepted at first. But there was his PR guy in the room. <laughs> And it was the PR guy who later rang Gordon with having Mark Moody Stewart having accepted the invitation, saying, I'm, afra- I'm afraid Mr. Moody Stewart won't be able to come to Nigeria with you. <laughs> because, of course, if, if the chief exec of a company like Shell actually sees with their own eyes, then they have a responsibility. <laughs> and if you have, if you see it's in a critical moment when you see you are responsible. So <laughs> it brings up a lot of questions for me because I think in some cases, yes, that moment of seeing must be really powerful. And in fact, you know, we can, we can relate at least in small ways to the moments when we first saw something in our lives, something that changed us. Um, whether it was the Iraq war or, I mean, it could even be the election of Trump. I don't know. For whatever people that are, you know, younger than me are going through right now as a sort of awakening. Um, but but it raises question for me about your book. And I'm still sort of wrestling with it. So we'll see what you have to say, yeah. which is there, there's, there is an underlying idea then that this is something, that a killer is something that we have to become. Right. That, that, but I wonder, like, are, are we, like, is it something we have to become? Do we have to learn to kill? But what if, what if not? What if actually it's, and I'm not, I'm not arguing for this side. I, Mm. I think it's, (laughs) I I prefer to believe that actually we don't naturally Mm. kill other people, but there is definitely, um, I would put it in terms, you don't have to agree with these terms, but I would put it in terms of sort of karma. You know, there's this great Rudolf Steiner uh, quote that I love, which is, you know, uh, man is not free. He is on the way to becoming free, meaning Mm -hmm. like always the forces of Mm -hmm. everything that's acting on us, our history, our karma, our identities, everything is pulling us down into a place of unfreedom. So to actually become free, you have to do this kind of development that allows you to sort of you never really transcend it, but you sort of get above it for a minute, like a seal coming through a little hole in the ice, going back down into your karma. But so I think like, but what if that field is just so sort of polluted that, you know, maybe we have the wrong idea of what a human being is. I, I want to bring up a, a weird example, maybe to express this. Like, I had a moment very similar to a moment you had in your life in the book where I got a BB gun um, and I, I was, yeah, I mean, I must've been like 16 or something. I was so into animals. I was a vegetarian. At the what time. is a BB gun? Sorry. Oh, sorry. A BB gun. It's like a pellet gun. 
right? Oh, yeah, like yeah. we'd say air, air rifle or something. Yes, basically. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I, I, my dad owned this sort of farmland. I was a vegetarian at the time. <laughs> like, I guess Hitler was a vegetarian. <laughs> I was a vegetarian at the time. And I, and I just started fucking shooting at stuff. And um, I got this, I saw this little snake that was in a pond. And in my head, I was like, uh, that snake's killing the chickens on the farm. Because actually there was something that had been killing the chickens. But it couldn't have been this snake. This was a little snake. It was tiny. I pulled it out of the water and I just shot it. And it didn't die. And it flipped over on itself. And I shot it again and it hissed and it didn't die. And finally, like my cousin saw what I was doing. He's like, what are you doing? And he just bashed it to death, you know? And you have this moment where there's this rabbit, you know, that you, <laughs> that you are reluctant to kill, but then you try to, and it sort of flops oh, around. You know. It's terrible. terrible right? moment. These moments, right? We repeat them in our head. I can close my eyes and see that moment yeah. with the snake yeah. and be so upset. But my, my point in all of this is. My brother, my brother was very unsympathetic to me. And he just, he just a bit like your cousin, just, he just sort of smashed yeah. it on the head. But I, but, I found it unbearable. I, I couldn't do it. I just well, well, so maybe a difference between you and I there, because I sought out doing this you know and certainly in my town like kids would just kill animals now these are these are animals you know not human beings but what i was thinking about was like maybe actually the urge to kill or the 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 killing is is not so hard but it's the facing it that's difficult so actually the act of killing or of harming people isn't so difficult for us that there's part of us that just allows us to carry out the act but the facing of the pain that is enacted in the killing is something else entirely. And so that's something that I was thinking about when I was reading, like maybe these people, they don't, they don't actually have a trouble killing. Like, I, think there, I think there were two different things. Um, Hannah Arendt gave an incredibly interesting lecture in New York towards the end of her life. And I haven't got the, I, I, I'm not sure I could find it, but, but the, the, what she was meaning um, in, in terms of this thing about killing she was talking about how all of us can kill insects without thinking about it. Mm. There's no problem with killing. Um, you like killing an insect. I mean, okay, some people would. Like if you're a yain in India, you you wouldn't do that. But okay, but for or the most worm of, you tried to feed the 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 herd, the right, herd in your book. That's yeah, right. yeah. But I mean. And then she said, um, and then she goes to another animal that's slightly bigger than an insect and says, most of us wouldn't have problems killing that. But but killing a dog would mm-hmm. be a problem for most of us. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Hannah Arendt traces it to the eyes. And I think she's probably right. So there's, some, there's something about when you get an animal that has eyes because eyes are the windows of the soul and, and you perceive suffering in the eyes. And so killing something that has eyes and looks at you, I think is a huge problem probably for, I would say for the, the majority of people, you know, I, I think, I think most people would find it extraordinarily difficult to kill a dog. I, I think so. I don't know. Well, why not a cow then is my question or a pig. Well, I, uh, and again, I think I, I, I think if we had to do those things, I think absolutely right. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. And, and in fact, I have ongoing, quite painful um, discussions with my niece, who's who's a vegan. You know, and she's 
<laughs> she she really holds me to task. She's taking you to task, yeah. <laughs> she takes me to task every single year. We have this de- the same conversation of, you know, Dan, you're so political. You're so hard on, you're so analytical. And yet you're not connecting things up. How can you still eat meat? Mm-hmm. And she challenges me. And it's good to be challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm aware in myself that it's an entirely inconsistent intellectual position on my part. Because I know I couldn't kill. I mean, I, I might be able to kill an animal if I was incredibly hungry and desperate. I, I, I think I would be able to. But I would find it difficult. But on a, you know, on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, I, I wouldn't, couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So I get people to do that on my behalf. And then I go and buy it in the supermarket, you know, and it's nicely packaged and there's no blood in it. So that's my... Uh, that's my example of compartmentalization <laughs> to come back to your, I mean, absolutely. Uh-huh. true. Uh-huh. But I think, I think your thing about killing other people, um, it's, I think about it all the time. And I, I, all the reading I've done all the last 20, 30 years and looking at people who became killers in terms of any genocidal situation or, um, the, the, you, you, you come, I mean, I talk about the, the example of um, Stangl in the book, who became the commandant at Treblinka. And it's, it's these incremental, there are 22 mm-hmm. moments in his life, 22 little steps, mm-hmm. where it's these tiny incremental changes, which enable this boy, who was a very sensitive kid growing up in Austria, very serious Catholic, moral child and it's these tiny steps that enable him 20 30 years later to be the commandant of an extermination camp at treblinka and he's killing a million people on his watch directly Uh Uh now uh, i I, that that that, and i look in the book in detail as you know in terms of all the things that enable those those sort of organizational killings to happen and, and there, are, there are a myriad of factors. And some of them are to do with what you see your peers agreeing to, uh, what, what they're going along with. Take the example of the doctors at Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. Doctors who took the Hippocratic Oath. And they're, they're, how do you get to train as a doctor where you know the preservation of life is at the center of what you do, and years later, you're on a platform in Auschwitz, and you're selecting people for the gas chambers. Mm-hmm. Doctors, hun- dozens of them were involved in Auschwitz. Maybe hundreds, actually hundreds of them were involved in Auschwitz. Now, that's the, what enables that to happen is, is a myriad of factors. But maybe, I, I, I don't think I've answered your question fully, because I think you're talking about, you're talking about, let's bring it back to our world. Let's bring it back to our world now. And let's bring it back to you and I. Let's not talk about other people. Let's bring it back to you, Connor, and me, Dan. And what what is it that would enable us to kill? And of course, often that's put in terms of self-defense. If somebody was coming at you with a machete or somebody was coming at you in a Dublin street at night um, and you felt your life was in danger, well, you fight with every resource you've got. Mm -hmm. That's self-preservation. Now, that's to some extent relatively 
not straightforward. If somebody, which is incredibly unlikely, because I don't even lock my door here in Wales, but <laughs> if somebody, you know, came in, came in in a night, you know, one o'clock in the morning, and there was suddenly a kind of mad guy with an axe at the door, I would defend myself sure. with every every ounce of strength I've got. I would pick up chairs. I would smash them over the head, you know. So, but that's not really what you're talking about, is it? Well, I think I think maybe it's interesting as you're speaking. What I'm getting a picture of is a kind of reverse. It's like a reverse or inverse kind of spiritual development. Like you list these steps in the book, mm. and they're really frightening. First mm. of all, because you and I and everybody have encountered a version of them in our lives. Mm. You know, maybe not in the context of a killing field, but we've. we've we've encountered versions of them and have probably acquiesced at least some of them on that list Mm -hmm. um you know but i'm thinking of it more of like a kind of a a sort of a spirit like a backwards it's almost like saying the lord's prayer in in verse or something like that this backwards way of doing it you know like in in the U.S. military, one of the things they teach is mindfulness to the soldiers. So you can just shoot somebody and be like, I'm pulling the trigger now. I'm feeling the kickback of the gun. I'm seeing the blood fly from their head. You know, it's like this thing that people think is this beautiful self-help mechanism, but of course can be used, you know, and is used. In, I had no idea. They're using that in the U.S. Army? Yeah, no, but I mean, people use it. Buddhist, Buddhism used in Bhutan, you know, Buddhists to kill, to, to kill people. I mean, it's just, it's used elsewhere as well. You know, it's just as far from this, like, delusional idea that buddhists are somehow like <laughs> non-violent and peaceful people of yeah. course there are buddhist murderers but um and buddhist death killers and in fact in some ways the act of death killing is like a kind of buddhist non-attachment kind of you know act but um That's a terrifying thought but yeah. <laughs> so so the so what i'm thinking is like and why am i thinking that I will, I guess I'm just going to keep bringing up Rudolf Steiner. Sorry. But the, the, but the, one of the other things he says is, you know, you get to a certain point in spiritual development. And if we, and if enough of us get there, what will happen is that no one will be able to feel suffering without it being felt by everybody. If I look upon someone who's suffering, that suffering will be mine. It will no longer belong to anybody but to all of us, which is the exact opposite of compartmentalization, which mm-hmm. makes these kinds of acts impossible, in fact, mm-hmm. if I were to strike you and feel it in myself. Mm-hmm. But that hardening of uh, certainty about the self, who the self is, what the self is, but at the same time kind of like obliterating the self in a very bizarre way. Like, mm-hmm. I am my function. I've become more and more functional in my life to either serve the ideology or to serve the task at hand. And the room that you live in in some way becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until you're just filling out the function of the structure that you're in. In other words, you become a cell of the structure rather than someone that is like trying to interpret or change or direct it. You Mm. become completely directed by it's almost possession in some weird Mm. way. And so I view it sort of as that, um, which would think about how we, what you've just said there, it makes me think about a moment that I'm sure we've all had in our lives where Mm. the first time you see something, you are so shocked and so appalled by it. Mm. And then over months and years, 
you we become normalized to that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the example i i can't remember if i actually did because of course the book that's just come out uh, which is a slightly scary thought is is it, it's a thousand pages but that's only part one there's uh, there's another that's half <laughs> uh-huh, of it uh-huh, uh-huh. that's half of it i know and that's not including <laughs> things i'm writing at the moment but you know that anyway but i can't remember whether it's in the the, the volume one or the volume two i talk about somewhere my first experience coming up having grown up in a very rural part of um east anglia in suffolk and where you never saw de- really de- destitution or poverty, just the, mm-hmm. not really in any way like you get in cities. And I remember going up when I was probably, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13 years old, go- going up on a school trip to London. And we were going, I think, to the Tate Gallery. And it was the first time in my life I'd seen a homeless person sleeping out. This, mm-hmm. is, this is probably in the very early years of Thatcher's time like maybe early 80s, um, late 70s. Um, and I just, it was sort of like I didn't have the ability to, you know, uh, uh, there was somebody sleeping on the steps and they'd made a little, they'd made a little home with cardboard and, and there was this human being who was homeless. Now, years later, of course, that has become an entirely normal site in, in kind of every city in the world. Those kind of, some of them, they're whole now cardboard cities of people. And, and, and we, we, and this is a very corrupting aspect of human beings and how adaptable we are, that has simply, we have normalized that experience mm-hmm. almost entirely. So what does it take to break through those patterns of normalization we've developed. That's the, that's the, an enormous challenge for us. Yeah. I mean, I think it is again, this sort of, in my understanding, a kind of spiritual development thing. So in one way, what you're saying is yes, it's become normalized, but normalized for you in a different way than for others, because some of us see something and the intensity of feeling becomes a portal into thought and then you think about it more and more and for mm. and then hopefully that unfurls into action mm. for a lot of people the feeling just becomes uh it sort of hits its own kind of walls and then it just stays there mm. and it actually doesn't enter into thinking and certainly not into this sort of unfurling of action mm. so i think that you know in some ways you're saying normalized but i would i would say you know well, first of all, you have taken a lot of action in your life, but th- to to the extent that it the feeling start penetrates the thinking and then that turns into action, is actually the process by which it works. And a lot of people get to a certain version of that, like it, you know, like it, it goes so far. But as long as it yeah. penetrates the thinking, at least it's move. At least it's in movement. Yeah. You know, as opposed to oh, that's terrible, and then just you know completely forget about it i and and some things strike us in feeling more than others you know like i when i lived in san francisco i talked about this on an episode before um with i think wendy Liu, who wrote a book called abolish silicon valley but i was just saying when i moved there there were so many homeless people Mm. and i'd moved there from amherst massachusetts that would walk around at night and i would i would literally just walk around and just cry walk around the city just weeping because i've seen everybody the amount that it 
sort of penetrated my feeling. And then what I would do, because I was escorting for a long time, was whenever I would have a client, I would leave. And the first homeless person I saw, I would give them like some of the money that I got. And I was like, whatever that means. I mean, I I realize that that's not addressing the structural problem, but the urgency and the necessity of taking action. Now, I don't do that here in Dublin. So, you know, it fluctuates. It doesn't stay just because you do it once either. So that's also the problem. They can sort of move in and out of those spheres of your kind of being. Absolutely. And, and of course you can't. And, and when, when, when something like that gets so huge, I mean, when I was living, was spending much more time in London, um, I mean, you know, you'd come across 10, 15, 20, 25 people a day. <laughs> and then it becomes an entirely arbitrary process. It depends on your mood. It depends on who you see. But you can't you can't give anything to 20, 25 people a day. I mean, not unless you're a multimillionaire. You couldn't. So it's 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 almost and then it then it almost you but you you almost mock yourself for those times when you do give something. You think, well, why then? Because you're in a good mood, because somebody you just had some good news and you were feeling generous. I mean, that's ridiculous. You know, what a what a, a crazy um, thing to do. So I don't know. I, I, um, I but I, I think we were at a maybe we've come away from the kind <laughs> of question you were asking there about you know, going back yeah. to the Steiner thing about the suffering that what was that thing he said again about the suffering if we could said it, you know at a certain point in spiritual development and it, it, it happens for us individually but the hope is that it happens for us eventually collectively is that no person suffers without <clears throat> everybody feeling it mm-hmm. so our suffering actually doesn't belong to us i mean this is one of the i think this is a huge problem right now is that we think that our suffering is ours alone Mm. In fact, we cherish it so much. I mean, you know, a thousand think pieces now about, Mm. you know, this horrible thing happened to me in my life and that's what made me who I am. It is true. And it is true on an individual level that, Mm. you know, we overcome things in our lives and they're intense and terrible and all that. But our suffering also does not, is not just us. It belongs to everyone and their suffering belongs to us as well. But to the extent that you don't just intellectually think that or just intuit it, but you actually experience it. I think mm. it's a different thing, and I think, and that's what he's talking about. It's okay. like you strike a blow on someone, and actually, you, you feel mm. it. You know. I mean, one of the saddest things, uh, from my perspective, about what the times we've just we're living through at the moment is, you know, I mean, I hear a lot of total bullshit about how you know the pandemic has you know brought us all closer together, and <laughs> you know, this we're so much, you know, the people are so much more engaged in their communities. I mean, I have to say my experience of the last six months has been that very striking what you've just said there, because it has been that my friends and nearly everybody I know, we, we have gone more in inside ourselves. And so many of my friends have become so obsessed by their own suffering that it is actually taken away their empathetic ability mm-hmm to think about others or to ask questions of their friends or to be curious about what, what other people's experiences of, of this last few months are. And I, th- I think it's been, it, it's almost like a metaphor in a way for the whole world we're in, the wider world we're in. So I think the pandemic has just made things more, has accentuated a lot of things, which is that we're so obsessed by our own 
identity and our own suffering and our own lives and our own experience that it's almost like on a on a wider level we've got a, a, a it's 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 it becomes harder and harder to connect with the suffering of others i mean i i, th I think it really does and i that depresses me it's a depressing thing to say but mm. i'm trying to be honest about you know what's that's something i've noticed and it may just be something to do with my my particular group of friends i'm not generalizing but i'm <laughs> i'm raising it as an issue you know well that that in itself is a kind of suffering so like i would say let's make sure we don't um inoculate ourselves against that kind of suffering right which is the inability to like connect with other people it may not be suffering in the sense of you know someone cuts your arm off or yeah. you know you've lost a loved one or whatever it is but it is a kind of suffering that kind of distance that is up to up to those of us who aren't experiencing that to rise to the challenge of engaging with that form of suffering i think i think i think also your book is an intervention because it is bringing the intensity, like I said, you have an extreme, anybody who reads this book will have an extreme response to it um, in, its, in its beauty and also in its terribleness. But what, one of the things, oh God, it's, it's really lovely, Dan, but you're writing about um, Albert Schwier and the words he spun, and then you start writing about the spider that appears as you are writing this. And so what that sort of revealed to me is that in trying to interpret other people's suffering and understand and their cruelties and all that, mm. and seeing the compartmentalization, you actually decompartmentalize. Because in that moment, like the world becomes more present for you. So you're, you're thinking about this thing and then the spider sort of shows up and you notice it. It's not just, uh, it's, I'm actually going to attend to the spider by moving it and also write about it and tell people about it. And so I think that that kind of connectivity is, is the response, you know, whether it's in the Steiner version I said, or just in sort of looking into suffering in a way that webs everybody else in, um, it's funny yeah. you mentioned that particular moment because um, there's just been a, a, a wonderful, very moving um, essay in, um, uh, in Racing Class that's just been published. And um, the reviewer, um, it's, it's a very, it's a very um, uh, well, it, it moved me enormously because the reviewer um, picks up on that. He, it, the, the piece is called The Desk Killer and the Spider. <laughs> and oh, he picks up on exactly <laughs> what you've just picked up on. Huh. And and um, it's uh, and it's uh, it's a, it's a very thoughtful piece. And um, but but yeah, the, the the huge irony of that is I had a real battle with my editor um, about there were half a dozen passages in the book we fought over. I mean, really fought over. And that was one of the ones he wanted to take out. So <laughs> I am so happy that you and this reviewer in class now vindicated. <laughs> Well, the the it's and also it, it relates to this thing that I don't know if John Berger said it to you or if he just said it, which was you know in people's books there's often no room for the reader to breathe, right? Mm. So you have these long passages about you going on walks and relating to your very close friend and the wind in the house that you're in and all that, which might puzzle people at first, I think, but then you you, you kind of get this idea again, like. Um, 
just showing the kind of wideness and depth and different faces of the world by doing that. And of course, breathing is a breathing is an act of, you know, contraction and, and expansion. So it's like the, the idea being, well, I, I, I have to take in the suffering of others. I have to bring it in, allow it in, allow it to permeate my cells with its, um, you know, to, to, to oxygenate my cells and then I can breathe out or maybe it's the reverse, who knows, but it's, but it, but the, but that allows for the kind of rest and the equanimity of encountering the violence. And Mm. I think that that's Mm -hmm. really beautiful. And also the the breathing is a way Mm. in which the world is constantly permeating and leaving you. So it's a perfect thing that John Berger said (laughs) and also that you handle. Well, it's a really, I had a really um, fascinating, long, long conversation with John at the beginning of this process of writing, because he had come to see an event, a live event that I'd done in London. Um, in fact, the very last one of it, it was kind of as I was developing these ideas, I, there was a series of um, very, very intense performances, but only for nine people, which we had at our platform space. Um, and I won't go into those now. It may be appropriate to talk about it some some other time, but, um, but they were they were pretty they were they were eight eight nine hour pieces it was a a kind of lecture performance and at the end the people who had come were taken onto a boat on the river thames and to kind of decompress and john came to the last of those i ever gave with his daughter they came from um france and um afterwards we got into a whole series of conversations about how i would how I would keep the intensity of that performance piece and transform it into a book. Because of Mm. course those are, you can't see what John loved about coming to that event is he said, we could see a bead of sweat trickle down your forehead and we could see your eyes beginning to move when there was a very moving, we could see every detail Mm. and it, it was incredibly embodied experience for him experiencing that that um event and so we talked enormously about how how do you keep that intensity on the page and of course i admired his writing um i still do uh, probably more than virtually anybody else um with the exception of maybe wg seabell primo levy but they're dead well john's john's dead now but i still think of him as alive (laughs) but um he's alive but 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 he is alive and I, it was an incredible privilege the last, to know him for the last sort of 15 years of his life. And we had so many conversations. But one of the conversations we had, he said he has a problem when he's reading a book. He's, he was sent you know, dozens of books, as you can imagine, to review or maybe to write a comment on. He said, the books I have so much of a problem with are when I agree with the political aims of the author. And yet the author has simply <laughs> stuffed so much information into the book that it doesn't leave the reader <laughs> any room to breathe. And he said, it's like being, it's like being on a, you know, you're on a tube platform in London at rush hour and everything's crammed up and you've got no space and it's nightmarish. And he, it was fascinating. And that conversation made me think very, very consciously when I was writing this book that I wanted to give the reader as much space, oxygen, beauty, nature as possible. Because if I was going to ask people to go on an incredibly 
tough journey, which which the book is, I also wanted there to be huge expanses of, of as you say, places where the reader can come out and breathe. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if I've totally succeeded in that or only partially done, but I, but I, I really wanted to have those textures in there. And I, I did get, I did get, and I've, I've had, you can imagine, um, some of the responses. Um, one of the most lovely things about writing is that, you know, you spend years and years working on your own and you're in your own head and then the book's published and then you get incredible responses by email or by somebody, your agent sends you things. And I, I, I got an, a really remarkable email a few weeks ago um, from a woman who's a very eminent psychotherapist and um, she, her specialist field is um, somatic trauma counselling. And she said, I think this book may become an incredibly helpful text mm -hmm. for people working in the field of trauma counselling. Because what you do is you take us into absolute horror, some of the most horrific things that human beings have ever done to each other, mm -hmm. and then you pull away and... You're, you're walking in mountains or by the sea or you're talking to your friend about having children or his life and you're, or you're looking at a bird hovering and it gives us as the reader this extraordinary ability to process otherwise unbearably traumatic material. And she assumed that I had had some background in, you know, <laughs> knowledge of this, but I hadn't had any specialist background. Yeah. It was just, well, maybe the conversation with John was very helpful to that. But it, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, and it's interesting because I don't think, I would maybe, not to quibble with this person who sent you a beautiful note, but I would say maybe like process isn't exactly the right word. It's more for, well, for, for me at least, it's more like, you, you you encounter it and then you're given by the book the strength to contend with it it's not that it's processed it's that yeah, okay I can, mm. I can i can i can contend mm. with it because i'm able to breathe which is you know with what john was saying to you you know that's an act of compassion for the reader you know compassion mm. means to suffer with mm. Mm. so that's it's not that you're forcing the reader to suffer alone but rather mm. that you're suffering with them Mm. And you understand what they're going to go through in the process of reading this book. Mm. And that is that, I mean, that's the remarkable thing, um, which mm. is that the book does what you are saying is needed mm. um, for people to contend with this problem in the world, which mm. is that it, it, it offers compassion, mm -hmm. um, but does not look away either. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not blinding. So I think that that's, I think really that's more than it's voluminous, you know, and, and, and detailed research. I mean, that is absolutely essential, but I think it does, it, it does that, you know, I well, think I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy to hear you say that. It's, it's very, <laughs> you know, it's quite moving because you, yeah, I mean, it's, no, it's important. It's important. I'm, I'm very happy. You've, and, and actually, but compassion, you're right, you know, um, with, it's with suffering, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And, and um, I, I think that's, a, I think that's a, a critical part of, of writing in 
a way where you understand that some of the writers I most love, it's that you realize they are open to the world and open to other people. Um, and it's rare. I think mm -hmm. it's rare. This stunning quote, um, well, it's not a quote, but I, I don't exactly know the exact quote, but something Prima Levi said, which he brought up, was that the people who sort of kept their humanity throughout the Holocaust, he saw, were Jehovah's Witnesses and communists, right? And um, now my, it's interesting because my project would be maybe doing a different version of communism meets Jehovah's Witnesses. Yes. It wasn't actually, <laughs> but, there, but, there were those two groups, but he actually lists, I, I went back to the quote uh -huh. and I found out it's, it's actually a wider group. It, it, the communists were included and Jehovah's Witnesses were included, but, but there's a wider listing. But the, the, the critical point about it is it was people who had either political or religious faith mm -hmm. because they could see um, they could make sense of what was going on at Auschwitz in a way um, where their suffering was seen within a wider frame, mm -hmm. either a religious frame or a political frame, where they were not surprised by the suffering in the way that people without political or religious faith were not only in an appalling situation, but they were also kind of surprised or astonished at what was happening to them. Yeah. And, so, and, and, I mean, <laughs> so. Yeah. It's, no, it's, it's profound. And it's why I bring it up is that it seems to me that people who have that, what you're saying is political belief or faith or whatever, that's room to breathe. Like yeah. that's a kind of breathing. Now it'd be interesting to sort of, <laughs> this is very figurative, but sort of examine the ways in which the, those breathing patterns happen from group to group, right? Like in some sort of Wilhelm Reich, like kind of observation of the quite hard to do, it? movements way, right? But but yeah, but the but the interesting thing to me about that is like that's part of what needs to be done now, and I think that that's part of the crisis that we're facing right now. Really, is a crisis in in meaning, and that the and, and a crisis of of purpose and and intentionality. And that these kinds of um, th this this kind of breathing, rather than a kind of uh, self-initiated or structure-initiated suffocation. I mean, especially in time now when we're talking about breath so much and staying inside and enclosures and you know um, all that kind of stuff. That that something that allows us to breathe. So um, listen. I can talk with you about eight million more things, um, but I, apparently you have a, a, a letter um, to the future that I oh, yeah. yeah that I would love for you to read. Um, okay, as we as we close out, this was written actually um, just about the time that the book came out last autumn, um, but it was it, it was really written because the experience of getting the book to publication was really, really tough um, for reasons that will become apparent as I read this letter. And it's a letter to my two nieces. Um, and so this was, this was written in September 2019. Um, dear A and I, You've both been so much in my mind over the last weeks, and I wanted to write to you before the impulse fades. Not our usual text messages, but an actual letter. 
You were both born at the very end of the 20th century, and with advances in medicine and science, it is just possible that you will both live into the first years of the 22nd century. And this remarkable prospect has been making me think about the relationship between the past, present and future in a different way. I'm sitting by the river, a still late summer's evening in Suffolk, the place where we all grew up and trying to visualise the world that you'll be seeing outside your windows in 2101. The temptation is to reach for the familiar dystopian imagery that surrounds us now of flooded lands and vigilante gangs in control, the total breakdown of the nation state and mass migration movements as desertification spreads northwards from the equator. But surely the only truly reliable lesson that history teaches us is that the future is, for the most part, utterly unpredictable. And in a similar way, it is a feature of every age that we look back on the past with horror, yet cannot see what future generations will be appalled about by our, about our own time. Before we leap forward by 82 years, what happens if we go backwards by the same period? 1937, the year your grandmother was born. Think about the world that she came into, the empire still continuing, India and many African countries, possessions of Great Britain, private doctors rather than a free national health service, most children leaving school at 14 years old, the death penalty still in regular operation. But can we see the aspects of our society now that will shock your grandchildren? Perhaps the very concept that in the early 21st century, we allowed the unlimited use of fossil fuels and that we let cars and lorries drive next to pavements in cities, even besides parks and schools and hospitals. Madness, people will say. Ine inevitably, my mind has turned to books. I hope they will still exist in 2101. I think they will. The concept of these portable pages contained within a cover has proved a tenacious survivor over several centuries now. Our human need to listen to stories and to tell them seems to be a primal one. I wonder what new thoughts you will be reading in your old age. And will there still be relatively free access to information or will there be greater controls? And who will be doing the controlling? The remnants of nation states and governments or the empires of techno-capitalism? But most of all today, I'm thinking about the way that we're all going to need to find an entirely new language to speak about the world we're moving towards. Your grandmother's generation grew up with the terror of world war, a time when the German writer Brecht asked this question. What kind of times are they when a talk about trees is almost a crime because it implies silence about so many horrors? I feel that my generation has not been able to see the wood for the trees. I've got a gut instinct that in your time, the word ecocide will become as widely used as genocide was in ours. I worry intensely that within 20 to 30 years, perhaps sooner, our actions and inactions will have triggered an irreversible collapse in the ecology of the earth. This evening, sitting by the river, the words of the musician and activist Utah Phillips are running through my head. The earth is not dying, it is being killed, and those who are killing it have names and addresses. The challenge in these words could not be clearer. Some of us have tried to do what we can, but I'm not sure that our generation, or the one preceding it, was ever really equal to the enormity of this task. 
But when we start to talk about the men and women who bear the greatest responsibility for the environmental catastrophe we're facing, then you come up against power with a capital P. We're all allowed to talk about climate change in the abstract. We're allowed to condemn government policies or the behavior of corporations in the abstract. But when you begin to write directly about the individuals who, for example, work at the highest levels of oil companies, when you come up against some of the most entrenched, then you come up against some of the most entrenched power structures in the world. I hope it will be different for you in 2050 or 2075. But in our time to publish anything that fundamentally challenged power required an army of lawyers. And even then, some of what was most needed to be published was never allowed to reach the printers. On certain days, the disparity of power was so overwhelming that only two responses seemed possible, to laugh or to cry. Nine men are executed in Nigeria for campaigning against the oil companies who are destroying their land. Hundreds of executives of these corporations are then paid millions of pounds. Millions more shareholders then profit from the dividends of these companies. In 2019, working on my book, Are You We Them?, with one of the most supposedly powerful publishers in the world behind me, I was allowed to list the names of the executed men, but not the names of those responsible for the executions. I have read the minutes of meetings which happened in the headquarters of these oil companies the day before the executions. I know the names of all the individuals who spoke at these meetings. I've seen documents that demonstrate the criminality of those at the highest levels of business. Yet in 2019, I could tell you these names verbally, but I could not publish them. I hope when you are old, or even sooner, that this state of affairs will seem absurd to you and your children. I hope that individuals in corporations will one day be held to account for their actions so that the kind of unrestricted criminality that has gone on in the name of free markets is no longer possible. But perhaps the most terrifying aspect of all of this is that we have now normalised the state of affairs. We have accommodated ourselves to the power structures of the world. We believe that is just the way things are. The great political philosopher Hannah Arendt wrote something that startled me when I first read it, but later I understood her meaning. She was describing, as a young Jewish woman, what shocked her most in the first weeks and months after the Nazis came to power. What horrified her was not so much the brutality of the Nazis, this was exactly what she'd expected, but the accommodation of many of her friends to the new power structures. As she described it, an approach of Gleichschaltung, cooperation. This is what Arendt said. The problem was not what our enemies did, but what our friends did. In the wave of Gleichschaltung, which was relatively voluntary, in any case not yet under the pressure of terror, it was as if an empty space formed around one. I lived in an intellectual milieu, but I also knew other people, and among intellectuals, Gleichschaltung was the rule, so to speak. The ultimate use of power is achieved when the perpetrators no longer need to wield power directly, when they can get people to police themselves. And the, the aspect of this which is most disturbing and which I can illustrate most vividly is that in 2019, just before this book went to press, the lawyers at my publisher 
began to ask for significant changes and cuts to the work. I am not naive. I had been prepared for discussions over the content for a long time, but to be asked only weeks before the publication date for further substantive cuts and changes to be made, this seemed extraordinary timing. Painful discussions followed back and forth between myself, the lawyers and the publishers. We pulled ourselves apart. We pulled the text apart. We examined quotations in microscopic detail, weeks and weeks of stress and insomnia and anger. It only occurred to me later that all of this had happened without a single lawyer at the oil companies picking up a single phone and having a single conversation about this matter. This, it occurred to me, was the real meaning of power. To create a climate of fear in which people no longer feel they have any real agency themselves, but where we decide in advance what we should or shouldn't say in anticipation of what they may or may not do. And this is what pained me more than anything else. As the song goes, we do it to ourselves, and that's what really hurts. We do it to ourselves. So in a society such as ours, what does our freedom really mean? I spend many months painstakingly researching and writing a chapter called The Invisible Corporation, which specifically looks at how a vastly powerful oil company can disappear from the public gaze when it suits them, only to be told by the lawyers that I might not be able to publish these pages an occurrence which could have come straight out of one of Kafka's stories. Who knows, I may not even be able to publish the letter I'm writing to you now. The evening is moving towards dusk, the late sun now catching the tops of the willows on the riverbank. I think of you both in London, starting out on your lives after college. Chaotic political times to be living through, caused by forces that you have little connection to, yet you will be impacted more than any other generation. I hope you will find new ways of fighting back and learn political languages of hope, a world away from the last implosions of nationalism that are disfiguring our culture at the moment. Suddenly, on the other side of the river, my eyes catch a glimpse of something moving next to the little bank of shingle where you love paddling on summer days. The bobbing motion, the pale yellow breast, a wagtail. Instantly, I'm absorbed by her movements, her alertness, her dipping animation as she turns almost 360 degrees, aware of every ripple and every pebble and all that stirs on the surface and below. And I feel an inexplicable surge of hope watching this small bird. May you be like her, dipping and diving through the waters and the air. I hope you will both be free in ways that are quite unimaginable to us now. All my love, D. Well, thank you so much, Dan Grattan. Thank you, Connor.